0: We're uh, almost at the end of a series called Disciple Defined, and I want to start this morning by telling you a story of uh, my junior high bully. And honestly, I'm a little conflicted telling the story, just being truthful with you, because uh, this this whole concept of bullying is so prevalent in our culture, right? I mean, it's like such a hot-button issue, Um, and and I, I... I, I hesitate telling the story because I, I don't, I don't want to just jump on a hot-button issue. Uh, and honestly, I'm a little conflicted in the whole bullying thing. Now, don't, don't hear at all that somehow I'm advocating bullying or, or I think it's a good thing. It's not. Uh, it's absolutely, I'm against it. But, but I, I do know from my own experience that sometimes bullying has provided great opportunities for us to teach our kids that uh, some people suck. I don't, I don't know how to put that. <laughs> In a more appropriate way, but it's what I mean. And again, I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying that 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 was more than likely a common experience for most of us and how we kind of learned that not everybody in the world is nice. Matter of fact, just out of curiosity, if you were bullied in elementary school or junior high or high school, would you just raise your hand? Yeah, that's a big chunk, right? Now, if you were the bully, would you? No, I'm just kidding, don't, don't. You're not supposed to raise your hand. Good night. Did you notice him, though? Right? We'll get him later. Just kidding. That's bullying. Here's the story I want to tell because I think it sets up where we're going uh, this morning. Is His name was Norman Clark. It's seventh grade for me, 1980-something. And um, uh, I don't really honestly know why Norman uh, decided to target me with relentless uh, bullying. I do know uh, that it started with something seemingly stupid, um, but at least in my brain this is where it started. Seventh grade basketball. Um, I think it was like, uh, I don't know if it was like a basketball league or something, I just know I had a uniform on, I didn't know what I was doing. We got these weird little cards, they they don't do this anymore where they made like sports cards out of you. Do do you remember this? Anybody remember this? Do they still do it? Oh, this is great ways to make money off parents, right? Anyway, so I still have this little card with me and this little. Well, Norman, Norman Clark was an athlete. I mean, he, that was his uh, his trajectory. Man, he was a tried and true athlete. And I, on the other hand, was was pudgy, <laughs> and so uh, we're playing basketball, and, and Norman was guarding me or something, I don't really know, I don't even know anything about basketball, I was just having fun with my friends, right, and so um, Norman used to do this thing whenever I'd start dribbling the ball, which was like important, because dribbling's hard, and I'd be dribbling the ball, and he'd put his hand on my hip, right, and, and kind of direct me, and I guess that's, I don't know if you're supposed to do that, or, I don't really know, but he'd like push me around a little bit and kind of not let me, whatever I was supposed to be doing, and the coach would always yell at me from the side, he always yells, slap his hand away, slap his hand away, and one day, I was just like, I got tired of the coach yelling at me, I think. And so Norman was on me, and I was dribbling, and I was trying to move back, and he had his hand on me, and he was kind of pushing me forward, and I slapped his hand away, like, no big deal, right? And that was it. Like, Norman, uh, uh, I, don't, I didn't factor on his radar. I don't know if he knew my name or that I existed, but that was it. Norman was after me. And anytime time he would see me, it, it would be some experience where he would be in my face seventh grade year, and eighth grade year, and ninth grade year. And 10th grade year. And in 11th grade, and I'm like 17, I, I, I had learned kind of his route, I'd know his schedule, I'd know where his classes were, I'd go a different direction, I'd find a different route, a different path. If I'd see him walking down the halls, I'd just take a left and, you know, find a long forever way to get to my class just to avoid uh, Norman. And, and in my 11th grade year, 17-year-old kid, 11th grade year of school, uh, something happened. I don't, I don't know what happened. But uh, one day, I just got, I think, tired of, like, walking different routes and whatever. I, I don't know why I did that. And, uh, and it just put me on the same path as Norman. And Norman uh, walks towards me and kind of has me cornered in this locker uh, area. I was at my locker, whatever. My, my friend is, my one friend is with me. And Norman comes up, and he's got his guys, whatever. And, um, and, he, and he comes up to me, and he starts, he just gets real close. And he says, I'm going to beat the crap out of you. And, uh, and I don't know what happened, I don't, I don't know. I know my friend next to me starts doing stuff like this, like, you're going to die. <laughs> right? And that, okay? And, and I don't know what happened in me. I don't know if I had Lucky Charms for breakfast. I don't know if I watched another episode of cartoons. I don't know what went on that day. But when Norman said that to me, I, I, I know you think you know where this story is going. You don't know where this story is going. I thought it was the funniest thing on the planet. I started laughing. I have no idea why I found that funny. Like, getting beat up's not funny funny at all, I don't think, but I thought it was super funny, and Norman said, I'm going to beat you, and and I started laughing, and I'm kind of cracking up, and now my friend next to me is doing this number, (laughs) can I have your stuff, you know, or whatever, and and, and I started laughing because I thought it was the funniest thing on the planet, and and Norman said, uh, oh, you think that's funny? And I thought that was even funnier. Now, I wasn't like, like trying a tactic here. This was not like intentional. I don't know what was wrong with me. And what's really funny is that Norman didn't know what was wrong with me either because as I'm laughing at him and he's getting closer to my face and he says, you think that's funny? And I'm like, yes, and I'm cracking up. He goes this. Like maybe I shouldn't pick on the crazy kid. I don't know, right? Norman backs away and, and I'm just laughing because I think this is funny. And, and this, this weird little, this, I remember this part clear as day, this weird little situation happens where Norman looks at his guys and looks at me and then just laughs and walks away. I, I, don't, I don't know what happened that day. It was the weirdest thing on the planet. What's even weirder than that is that uh, that was the last time I ever saw Norman, like at school, I mean, I don't, I don't know what to make of that. I, I, I mean, it was a big school, but still, you see people, you cross paths, and I had another year and a half going on. And, and I never saw Norman again. I don't know if it's just I didn't care anymore, and so he wasn't you know, on my radar, so I wasn't hiding from him or whatever. I, I don't know what happened. I don't know if he moved schools. Honestly, to be honest with you, I, I, don't, I don't know what happened to him at all. But it was super strange. And it took me some years because even as a junior and senior in high school when it sort of ended and I wasn't worried about him anymore, I still had no clue why he did that. Like what caused him to target me? It wasn't this stupid thing in basketball. That was dumb. It didn't even matter. He, he could have been mad for a moment and then out or whatever. And so I'm trying to figure that out. And it wasn't until years later and I was reading an article in some magazine or something that helped solidify it in my head. This was the tagline. The end of the article said this. It said, so don't take things so personally. People are not against you. They're just for themselves. That was huge to me. I was like, oh, and Norman came back flooding into my brain that, you know what, I don't think he was ever really like after me. He was just for himself. See, Norman had a me problem. He had the wrong pronoun at the focus of his heart, and it caused him to be the way he was. It's interesting because if I went around and asked all of us who raised our hands that have been bullied by hunches that, that, that we've got some similar story that that person probably had a me problem. And if we really, really wanted to get into it today, we might look at ourselves and ask ourselves, am I... Any different, And that, that's where we do want to dig a little bit today, because we're in this series called Disciple Defined. We've said a disciple is someone who follows Jesus, is being changed by Jesus, and committed to the mission of Jesus. And, and the reality of that is that that has to impact everything around us. Last week, we, we talked about how it's got to impact our actions. So if, the, if, if our works, the things that we do aren't impacted by being a disciple of Jesus, then we've got to ask some questions. If we look at the things we do, and there are none, we've got to ask some questions about our discipleship. Today we want to talk about how we interact with other people. And we're going to do it in kind of an unusual way, and maybe it'll make some sense. I hope it does. And next week we'll talk about perspective. How being this disciple of Jesus, someone who follows Jesus, is changed by Jesus, committed to the mission of Jesus, has to change our perspective, has to impact our perspective. And so as you're opening to the book of James, whether it's on the app that you have on your phone in front of you or iPad or whatever, or if you grab a Bible off the back pew there, James chapter four is where we're gonna be this morning. We, we thought it was a good idea in asking, what does it look like practically to be a disciple? It's super easy to say changed by, follows, committed to it easy to say and a lot harder to figure out the nitty-gritty dirty down details of that it made sense to look at james james who who was a half-brother of jesus went from from skeptic to servant went from doubter to disciple because in james's first half of his life he didn't believe jesus was who he said he was and then after this whole death burial and resurrection thing that jesus did james was like oh (laughs) okay So James transitions from a guy who just wasn't interested, didn't believe, to, to an ardent disciple of Jesus, a passionate follower of Christ that impacts the rest of his life. James chapter four is where we want to start this morning. It says this in verse one. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Like you desire but you don't have so you kill. You covet but you can't get what you want so you quarrel and you fight you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Can we read that one more time? And I just want to change one, one word. You'll see the word change. What if, what if it reads like this? Because I think this is the tone of the passage. It's, it's, you'll see what I'm doing. What causes fights and quarrels among us? Don't they come from my desire that battle within me? I desire, but I do not have, so I kill. I covet, but I cannot get what I want, so I quarrel and I fight. I do not have because I do not ask God. And when I ask, I do not receive because I ask with wrong motives that I may spend what I get on my pleasures. Do you see a common word there? (laughs) See, I think that's the tone of what James is saying because it's so much easier to say you, and when we personalize that, which is what James is saying, we realize there's a pronoun problem. So, so this idea of me and my and, and, and I is an, is an issue. It, it's this, this concept of uh, life is all about me. It's all about me. It's what I can get out of it. That's the problem. That's the same problem that bullies have. It's all about them. It's, it's this, this massive drive for self. And I think James recognizes it in himself as well as the people that he's writing to. And I'd submit maybe us this morning as well. That drive puts self first. It says stuff like, I should be happy and satisfied above everybody else because I'm more important than them. My rights should never be infringed. My experience is what governs everything I do and think because it's all about me. The sad reality is that the all about me life never leads to satisfaction. James is clear; he says it leads to fights and quarrels and strife and frustration and anger and trying to get my own way and all these things that just get us all bound up inside the all about me life. And yet, so often we live this. Uh, when, I, when I was a youth pastor, worked with a lot of high school students, and um, it's interesting because one of the we would teach them this hand motion. If you've ever been a parent, and I love high schoolers. So this is not any of you, I'm sure of it in this room right now. But if you've ever been a parent of a high schooler, maybe you know this because we would tell them this. We'd say, uh, "Chris, the world." <laughs> Do you understand that? Like somehow, in 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 our heads, when we're younger, we think that the world revolves around us, and we we kind of laugh at that when it's maybe high schoolers or little kids. But then when they become adults, and the world still, they think the world still revolves around them. It becomes really Gross, doesn't it? And so James is so clear because he says, when we live, this world is all about me. When we live the way that just says, uh, me first, that it's all about me, it doesn't lead to, to any kind of satisfaction or hope or health. It leads to fighting and friction, chaos and trouble, murder of people's character or future reputation, all because we're internally frustrated that we found out that the world really doesn't revolve around me. And yet so often we live as if it should or still does. It's interesting because in verse 3, James says, you know, you ought to be talking to God about this. You ought to be asking God to help you figure this out. You ought to be asking him for these things that we want so badly. But he says immediately, but, but unfortunately when you ask, you ask in wrong ways for wrong motives. Those, those prayers might sound more like, hey God, let them see how good I am. Let them realize how right I am. Make them understand my perspective or my point. You see the pronoun problem still it's all about <laughs> me james says this is a problem and in, in, in verse four because he wants to get the attention of people who are who are living the all about them lifestyle he he, he says this he says you whores that's strong language right we just had a moment of uncomfortability, but that's really the translation there. And I, I, I know our, our, our Bibles uh, sanitize that a little bit for our benefit. It's uh, you adulterous people, but it's really, it's really rough language because he's getting their attention and, and using uh, an imagery like you should have been faithful to what God has called you to do, but instead you've taken other lovers, you've taken other people as first place in your life or you've taken other systems, has first place in your life, and you've chased those and aligned yourselves with those instead of the, the, the spouse, the system, the, the person that I gave you. So he says in verse 4, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he, God, jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows grace favor to the humble this this idea of of two systems of two ways of doing life like this one that leads to strife this one that leads to something different it really pushes us back into chapter 3 verse 13 where he has already set this up and he's just referring to it again here in verse 13 he says who is wise and understanding among you let him show it by their good life deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, the idea of life is all about me, me first, it's all about me. If you harbor that selfishness in your heart, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Like such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Did did you catch that? Like James seems to clearly believe that the all about me life is demonic. He says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. This idea of doing life the way the world says that we should do life, or if you want to put it this way, discipling yourself to the world's way, the world's system. He says it doesn't lead to the thing that we want. We so badly want to be satisfied and encouraged and whole, and we want people to know uh, what we can do and, and the things that we have put forward. We want this kind of stuff, and so we push so hard for it, the world's way, and we're left frustrated and evil and disorder and unspiritual and bitter and selfish. And James says it's demonic. But look in verse 17, he describes the other option. He says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure." And peace loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And just of those two descriptions, doesn't like your heart of hearts long for one of those more than the other? I mean, if we took a poll in here, I think almost all of us would say, man, my heart longs for that second description, the idea of pure and peace and considerate and full of mercy and good fruit and sincere and being a peacemaker. And yet we struggle so much to do life the way the world says that we should do it. And so we're full of just strife and frustration and chaos and irritation. These are new concepts for the first century church. As James is writing this, other authors had said this. As a matter of fact, in Second Timothy, Paul puts it this way, chapter 3 of Second Timothy, Paul says to a young pastor, he says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves lovers of money boastful proud abusive disobedient to their parents ungrateful unholy without love unforgiving slanderous without self-control brutal not lovers of good treacherous rash conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god well that sounds like fun doesn't it man and it all starts with people will be lovers of themselves and in verse 5 paul goes on to instruct timothy don't have anything to do with them have nothing to do with such people Another author named John, one of Jesus' uh, disciples, he says this to, to a letter he wrote to a church in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 15. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. everything in the world the lust of the flesh lust of the eyes pride of life those those things that the world says are so important to have and hold on to that you've got to fight at every cost and and destroy those who would take those from you and you've got to hold on to them at all costs and when you get them you don't let them go for anything he says they, they come not from the Father but from the world not from the Father but from the world. I don't want you to hear that you can't have fun and and like you're not allowed to watch Netflix or Stranger Things or something like that because that's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about not enjoying I mean, uh, Christian communities for way too long have used a verse like this to say, well, that's why you can't have uh, a car (laughs) that runs or nice clothes or uh, entertainment. And that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a world system. It's talking about who we disciple ourselves to. It's talking about what we follow. It's talking about doing life the world's way or doing life the way God says we're to do life does that make sense see it it might uh, look like this though not trusting God enough to fight my battles and so I have to revert to the world's way of handling it start yelling at everybody around me I'm going to trash someone's reputation to make mine look better I'm going to lie on the work order in order to save the company some dollars I always have to win every argument because I always have to be right Etc., etc., etc. Digressing to the way the world says to do life is a massive red flag. That that I need more Jesus in me. (laughs) That that I am not trusting the gospel of Jesus in that area of my life enough to let it impact me like the disciple should. Maybe we say things like this: "Hate the game, not the player." We say that's just what it takes to get stuff done in our world today. Maybe we say that's how everyone I know does it maybe we say well that's just how I am exactly that's the problem right because we so easily slide into this the whole world is all about me mindset that we have a pronoun problem it's all about me and my and I And instead of doing life the way God says, we do life the way the world says. What do we do about this? This is so cool because I think think James is living this life. I think he's struggling through these things because he writes some stuff that seems to be so simple and yet so profound. Starting in verse 7, he says this. Do you see the first word? I hate that word. I don't want to talk about that word. We have a submission, I have a submission problem, but we have a submission problem. In our culture in particular, we love characters like John Wayne or John Rambo or Wonder Woman, right? And I'm not knocking any, I love all those movies, my favorites, I'm just saying we really highly value the individual that does it all about them, all for themselves, all on their own, right? And, and, yet, and yet we get this, this, this concept immediately that says in verse seven, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. It's so interesting. He, he, he starts this concept of what do you do about this all about me problem by saying submit. Man, nothing kills the me faster in me than submitting me to something Mission's hard. Uh, my freshman year of high school, uh, I, I thought I was going to do Air Force Academy. That was my trajectory. I thought I was going to go in the Air Force, go in the Air Force Academy. So I did junior ROTC in high school. And I, if you've been here uh, for a while, you've heard me tell some stories about that. But what was, because uh, it wasn't, wasn't my cup of tea. It didn't really, I was, I was not a good fit. But um, what I learned in the first three months of junior ROTC was that um, I wasn't cut out for military because I had a massive submission problem. As as a junior and uh, a freshman in high school, it just struck me because I was I was I was all amped up and frustrated about these sophomores and juniors telling me what to do. They're not going to tell me what to do. I had this massive authority problem. It's interesting because um, the church I was at before I came here six years ago. Part part of the reason we came to North Point. there's a number of reasons, but the church I was at before uh, I was I was functioning at like a second level leader pretty high whatever and um and one of the deals with this church here was that i was going to come here to be in a like a fourth tier leadership role like way down the pipe (laughs) and one of the things in my head was i wonder if i've grown anymore since that freshman year of high school do i still have a problem submitting myself to authority because no longer would i lead at a level that i had led at but instead i'm going to come and my opinion won't matter at all (laughs) it's so far down the pipe what a good experience man, am I able to submit myself? Because the first thing, the best thing, the most strongest thing that kills the me inside of me is submitting me (laughs) to something. And it's interesting because, because James says submit yourselves to the best thing possible that you could submit yourselves to. Like to submit yourself to God who's only out for my best interest and knows me better than I know me and has these great ideals and plans and concepts for my life even though it may not always feel that way. God is for me, not against me. Like I might submit myself to a boss or, or something someday who may not have such great intentions for me and there's still great learning in that. However, God is not that kind of person. It says, it says submit yourselves to God. And it's so interesting because you know James is trying to live this out because right away the next sentence is, is what happens like you submit yourself to God, like you figure out like this moment where you're like, okay, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna submit myself to God, I'm gonna stop striving in that place, with that thing, in that relationship, and I'm just gonna trust God in it. I'm gonna commit it to prayer, I'm gonna, I'm gonna worship over it, I'm, gonna just, I'm just gonna do that, I'm gonna submit myself to God, I'm gonna let him stand up for me. And what's the first thing you hear in your ear? Well, you're an idiot. That's never gonna work. They're gonna run all over you. All that you've worked for is going to get taken away. Am I wrong? It's interesting. Right? Because he says right away resist the devil. Because that's the devil whispering in our ear. No, Chris, doing it God's way? Don't, don't do that. No one else is doing it that way. And so you're just going to get hurt in the process. You've got to fight for your right. You've got to. He says resist the devil. Resist those voices. No, I'm going to do it God's way. And if God calls me to fight for my right, then I'll, whatever, I'm going to do it God's way. I'm going to trust that God's got a plan in this. I'm going to submit my will to him and let him move in my life. I'm going to work really hard at that. And the devil starts whispering, that will never work. It's so interesting because James says resist him. And what does it say right after that? This is the coolest promise on the planet. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Like the devil cannot stand up against a disciple that's actively resisting him. The disciple who's saying, I'm gonna follow Jesus under all cause and cost. He says, he says, resist the devil and it'll flee from you. Here's the most beautiful part. I just wanna almost stop after this, but I gotta finish. But He says this, and come near to God. Okay, that's beautiful. Come near to God. He, he says, submit yourself to me, and then resist what the devil's trying to whisper to you, and just come close to me, like, like, like sidle up, like get in there, like, Like, snuggle in. I don't know if that works for you or not, right? Like, get close. The God of the universe that holds the universes in the span of his hand, which is this little portion right here. He says to you by name, get in here. Get in here. Come near to me. That's an, I I don't know, guys. That's a crazy call. That's a crazy invitation that is an amazing promise god says draw near to me hitch yourself to me attach climb on get in there and what does he say after that i'm gonna do the same to you draw near to me i'm gonna draw near to you what a promise submit resist draw near to god what a cool cool concept and then we get into verses 8, 8 through 10 uh, there and, and it seems like it's strange washing your hands sinners purify your hearts grieve mourn change your laughter to mourning that that's all jewish language that's talking about death and funeral it, it really is drawing up this picture of something that's died and you grieve it and you mourn it and then you and then you leave it dead this idea of constantly going back and doing life uh, the way the world says we should do life like let's just let that be dead Stop pulling it out of the casket and propping it up and putting it next to you and trying to live that way. And he says, May they draw near to me. Draw near to me. Submit yourselves to what I want to do in your life. Stop stop chasing what the world says is the way that we're supposed to do life. Disciple yourself after me. And we get this death language picture And if we needed more, as if we needed more, understanding how this impacts our relationships around us. He jumps right into verse 11 where he says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Because James doesn't want us to miss the picture that when when we do life the way God says to do life, the system that he's called out, submitting and resisting the devil and drawing near to him, it impacts in great ways our relationships around us. And instead, when we try to do life the way the world says to do life, with striving and fighting and constant churning, it impacts (laughs) the relationships around us. And if you've lived that way, you know you leave a wake of busted relationships and carnage in your path. And instead, if we chase what God has for us to chase, if we disciple ourselves to Jesus, that impacts in amazingly positive ways our relationship with people. There's a better way to disciple ourselves to Jesus. Submit, resist, draw near. My, um, my bully, Norman, he, uh, uh, he wasn't the only one with the all about me problem. <laughs> Matter of fact, I, I have the all about me problem. My, my hunch in here is that at different times and different moments, we all struggle with the all about me problem. The question is, will we submit ourselves to the way of the disciple? Or will we still try to do life the way the world says we have to do life? Because when we live with the all about me problem, live that way, the way the world says we should do, there's no possibility of treating others the way a disciple should or the way Jesus would. So, so we're gonna sing a final song and uh, the words of the song I think match kind of where we're heading uh, really, really well. And, and you just choose, if you wanna sit or stand, that's completely up to you. I would just maybe ask a few questions to be rolling through uh, your mind. You'd be asking yourself. Like, like what, what does most of my relationships look like? You leave a wake of carnage? Or are you more of a peacemaker? Do you, do you create chaos everywhere you turn? Does the way I treat people reflect my disciple journey? Am I submitted to the rule of God in my life? How about this one? When the pressure comes, do I run to Jesus or do I try to do it the world's way? Because at the end of the day, there's there's two paths to discipleship. One chases the world, and one chases Jesus.